The information in this podcast is educational in general nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Three, two, one. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. If this is your first time joining us, I'm Eric Fury. We have our attendees poster. This is Gary Reby. We have an awesome guest for you today. We have Dave Waters for you. Um, remember, you can check us out anywhere podcasts are available. You can find us at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network. You can check us out on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Dave, thank you so much for being here and joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, guys. Happy to be on. So, so I, think, I think we both know who you are through your <laughs> blog, uh, which is great. Uh, and now you have you've had Alluvial Capital for several years now. Um, just uh, you know, anybody who doesn't know you, just give us a you know a quick overview of who who you are, what you're up to, and how you got here. Yeah. Happy to do so. So I guess at the heart of it, I'm a guy who enjoys uh, turning over rocks. Uh, I love trawling the market for the weirdest, most least known, strangest uh, investment opportunities I could find. Uh, oftentimes, that means little companies. It means companies trading over the counter or sometimes in some weird exchange that it's hard even to get access to. But Basically, if it's something that you don't see in the Wall Street Journal or on CNBC, then it, it might be interesting because the fewer people are looking at it, the, the better chance that it's uh, mispressed. So uh, I've been doing this for oh, close to a decade. Uh, I went full time with it about seven years ago when I launched Alluvial Capital Management. And, and that was an outgrowth of uh, a blog I've written for several years called OTC Ventures, where I profiled some of the more some of the wackier and, and more interesting opportunities I've found. So yeah, I'm just a guy who sits at home all day looking for stuff like this and it, it's a blast. And so what was the forgive me, I, I mean I know the OTC Adventures blog, I, I followed it. Um, what happened first? Alluvial Capital and launching that or OTC Adventures? OTC Adventures. Um, I started the OTC Adventures because I was bored at work. Uh, I had like a steady but unexciting job at a, at a trust bank and i mean it was pretty much like hey here's a list of 50 blue chip stocks like pick 20 and that's a portfolio it was just boring uh i i knew there had to be more out there to invest in and so i started doing my own research and discovered this world of thousands upon thousands of securities that no one ever talked about and thought this is what i want to do so i started writing Knowing that, you know, I didn't really have the traditional investment bank, MBA, uh, internship at a hedge fund or private equity fund uh, background. And I thought, well, if I want to do this for a career, I have to figure out a way to get my ideas out there so people can see them. And if they like them, maybe they'll hire me or something like that. But in the end, what happened was people would say, hey, I like what you do. These are ideas no one talks about. Can you manage my money? And I thought, yeah, why not? Let's do it. So I gave it a shot four years, or seven years ago, and it's it's gone well. How do you do it today? Because I get your letter. I, I, you know, forgive me if I'm not remembering this correctly. It's mostly like an LP structure. 
That is correct. Yeah, our, our flagship vehicle right now is an LP structure that's just open to qualified investors. But I still write publicly. I, I still find it fun to share ideas, even with people who might not be potential investors. Right. How did you how did you stumble into the OTC um, stocks and, and looking and sort of looking for the obscure, as you put it? Like, what was your first entree to that? And like, you know, how did you get bitten by that bug? <laughs> You know, it actually goes back a few years before I even started working. I think I was in college when I read a book called What Works on Wall Street uh, by James O'Shaughnessy. And he had uh, a lot of data that sort of pretty, it made the, the case pretty well that if you really want to uh, skew the odds in your favor to make great returns in the long run, um, you're better off looking at companies that are small, um, unloved, traditionally cheap, uh, and, and especially uh, illiquid. Finley traded stocks actually tend to do a lot better than the market over time as, as a whole. And so I thought, you know, here I, at the time I was in my 20s and thought I have 50 years to invest, hopefully before I really start to need this money in retirement, I should do this. I can handle the volatility. Um, so that's what, where I'm going to focus. And um, yeah, and it was a way to stand out as well. I mean, I knew that if I went out and wrote the 80th article on Google or something for Seeking Alpha, who cares? Am I really going to provide any unique insight as a person in my mid-20s? Right. But if I write about this community bank in Ohio, there's a good chance that I'm looking and picking up something that the rest of the market doesn't know. So it's all about maximizing the success of my efforts and uh, fishing in smaller ponds sometimes uh, does that for you. And how, and how did you stumble across the first, like what was the first thing you did? How did you stumble across it and sort of how did it evolve from there? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I started out in a pretty haphazard way. I'd like pull up otcmarkets.com and just go to the news section and just start reading what the press releases were from these companies. And I mean, OTC markets, it's a real, uh, it's, it's like a flea market, right? Like 95% of the stuff is just total junk that no one should ever even consider investing in. But if you root around enough and you uh, are willing to skip past the stuff that's crap, you can find really amazing things now and then. And so it didn't take long before, and especially at the time, this was maybe 2011, 2012, just a few years past the financial crisis. And these markets were still so bombed out. Uh, just You could tell that people were just scared to invest still uh, because there were still fears that it, it could happen again. And so I would easily find like industrial companies trading like five times earnings or like real estate companies at half of tangible book value or something. And, and so I quickly realized I, I kind of found a gold mine. Uh, you know, there was a lot of junk, like I said, but it wasn't hard at all to find really, really good ideas. And so I think one of the first things I ever wrote about or invested in was called Acme Communications. No longer exists, don't own it. But it was a liquidation play where they owned, I think, four or five radio stations in Arizona. And they came out and said, like, we're going to sell these. Uh, we have buyers lined up. We're going to get a, a decent price for them. We, in fact, we already sold two. And here's what we got. And it wasn't difficult to look at their main stations and say, okay, if they get about that much for the other three, they'll probably get twice the market cap, uh, net of tax. And so it was, it was, it was very, very easy to do. There's, those opportunities are, are a little bit rarer these days, especially with the long bull market. But back then it was, it was fishing a barrel. 
Right, right. And and as you're sort of, um, you know, sort of sifting through there looking for the, the, the diamonds or, or the gold in the, in the, in the hills, um, you know, talk us, talk to us a little bit about what that process is like for you. Cause I, I, you mentioned sort of just reading through OTC markets news and I, I actually do the same thing today. I don't know if you still do that. I haven't found a better way to, okay. is, if there's a better way to do it, I, you know, maybe you could share that with us, but like that, that just sort of seems like you just kick, kick, keep, keep clicking scroll on the news. How do you sort of assess whether, uh, you know, you're looking at something that's real or, or sort of fool's gold or worse. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the entire ballgame is figuring out, like, is this is this company's results, is they real, is it sustainable, or are we at the start of something, or are they peaking right now and it's all available <laughs> here? Uh, I guess I started by sort of building a database. Um, anytime I would see a news item from a company and I looked at the company and it had real revenue and it had seemingly capable people in charge and the, and the balance sheet was decent and Anything that had a chance of earning a sustainable profit, I'd throw it into a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and I'd start tracking it. And even if the company didn't look attractive now based on based on the ratios or based on the outlook, I'd say, okay, well, this is one to watch. And then I would make myself go through, like, my goal would be to revisit the company at least quarterly and see if they put out anything new, see if they had any changes in strategy, if they bought something or sold something or, and, uh, and what their commentary was. And, and just by forcing myself to look at these companies several times a year, I could stay up on, on things. And at one point, my spreadsheet was like 500 names long. It's a lot smaller now because a lot of these companies have gone private. They were bought out by management or private equity or, well, I mean, some of them blew up, of course, some of them are bankrupt and some of them are much bigger now and they're not, no longer as interesting. But there was no shortcut to it. Uh, people will ask me a lot, like, well, what's the quickest way to go through all of these companies to trade over the counter? I'd say that's, you're thinking about the wrong way. Um, the quickest is not going to get you what you want. You need to find a way that lets you get through a lot of companies in a reasonable time, but at a sufficient level of detail that you have a good idea of, you know, you have a good idea of a company that's worthwhile, or if you can just say, this one I can ignore. And you can't ignore nearly all of them. Right. So you've systematized it to the point where mm-hmm. you've got a list of things that you're following and watching. And you've got a, like, Eric and I have a list of like profitable micro caps and profitable OTC companies or, you know, what have you. You've, it sounds like you've got some version of the same yeah. thing, but maybe you just categorize, maybe you're thinking about them and categorizing them and bucking, bucketing them, however, however, maybe different from that. Um, totally. How do you go about, um, you mentioned OTC markets, but like, what, is there anything else about your search strategy that, that, that is interesting? Like, how you add things to the list and, and go through that. Um, is, is there anything else that, uh, you know, as your, any other rocks that you flip over from time to time? Yeah, totally. So it's also important to realize that companies are constantly entering and exiting the OTC markets. I mean, they exit by a buyout or maybe they uplist uh, to a major exchange, but they enter in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it's a company goes, bankrupt and after the, uh, after the bankruptcy process is finished, the shares, Sometimes before they uplist to a major exchange, they trade OTC for a while. And right. that can be a really, really interesting entry point because at that point, a lot of investors aren't looking there. And you might be able to get in uh, before that happens. And sometimes you have a company that gets delisted from a major exchange because it ran into issues or something, or, or they want to save money, that happens too. And then they pop up OTC. And uh, you can find uh, all the companies and securities as they enter the OTC markets by looking at the FINRA daily list. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, at least a couple of days, just Google it, 
least a couple of times a day, I check. And what's great is they have every corporate action that an OTC company does, whether it's a dividend or a stock split or um, just a new security. And I mean, again, most of the time you can look at it and 10 seconds later, you're like, this isn't worth my time. But no, then you find something really interesting. You just have to be diligent about it. Yeah, we, Eric and I go through that list uh, pretty regularly. It's amazing how many uh, OTC banks and weirdo prefs there are floating around out there that are just like paying dividends and stuff that take up 90% of the list. But occasionally <laughs> there's something interesting, right? Yeah, and ADR is just like the other 80% of the list. But yeah, there's other stuff too. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And so, what's the process from you do the kind of screening, initial due diligence to actually graduating to a position in the portfolio? How do you make that determination? Is there any, are there any other aspects to the, to the research process and due diligence process? Are you talking to management? Maybe you could walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's fairly traditional fundamental analysis on my part. I mean, the, the toughest part for me is generating an idea. I find the diligence is, is a little easier. Uh, it's traditional stuff. I mean, it's, it's modeling out the company, uh, taking a look at the results for the several trailing years, looking at all the risk factors and commentary for recent filings and sort of trying to get an idea of what is normalized earnings power here and, and how, is that, how will that develop over the next couple of years. Uh, I do like to talk to management. Um, I reach out, if they wanna to talk to me, if they're friendly, that's a great sign. If they're hostile or I don't hear back, that's a really bad sign. Uh, a lot of companies trade over the counter because they have no interest in being a public company and they have no regard for their shareholders. Uh, some of them share an OTC just because they always have or they're just cost conscious and, and that's okay but you don't want to invest in a company that hates you for investing in them. And there are a lot of those out there. A lot of them would just rather you just go away and let them do their thing. But, but yeah, I, I like to talk to management. I look into their backgrounds and see if they have a history of doing good things or do they have a history of ripping people off? Because you have a lot of serial, uh, serial fraudsters and just uh, people that bounce from company to company. How, 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 do you, how do you figure out the serial fraudsters and the history of ripping people off? Sometimes it, sometimes you can see it because it's in plain sight in the proxy, <laughs> but like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can't. So, uh, is there anything that you do as part of your process that you know? Is it we like Eric and I have a pacer login and. I'm, uh, like basically every investor I know that has a Pacer login has gotten like an eight hundred dollar bill from Pacer unexpectedly at some point. <laughs> you, you have a story like that or two. Like, uh, what, what do you what do you what do you do for your for, for what you're working on? Yeah, nothing in particular like that. But it, you know, it, it's astonishing how many times you you took a company, look at a company's website, you look at like the bio of the CEO, and it's like all these great things. You know, led this company, the group this this, and like has a degree from. Um, you know, such and such university MBA program looks really good. And they're on the board of all these organizations. You know, oh, this is a really, really upstanding member of the community. And they seem like they're just a good person. But then you like do some Googling. It's not the first page of the Google results, but you go, go, go. And then you're like, oh, you know, here's a DUI from like three years ago. And, you know, here's where they were like, nearly disbarred from the, they were disbarred from their law from a lawyer or you know they or they had it to settle with FINRA or the SEC or something. And yeah. it's amazing what you there's so many things out there that people don't want you to know that you can still find out with not even that much research. It's hmm. interesting. It's incredible. So like always, always look into the backgrounds of people as much as you can. Um, and not not in a cynical way. Not don't like assume that every person has uh, is trying to hide something from you. But uh, you do have to be pretty confident that the people at these, especially very small companies, are, are upstanding. 
And if, if just a simple Google search shows you something, well, that's a major red flag. Yeah, so, so some combination of that and just looking at the compensation practices and that sort of thing. And Absolutely. there are a lot of people with the same last name in, in the proxy, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, incentive the incentive structure is just absolutely critical. You, you ask yourself, how is this? How will this person make money? Um, in a lot of cases, they make money because they get a million dollar salary from the company, and some of them I've even seen them where they get like a royalty on sales, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and so you know what their motivation is: make every sale you can, whether or not it's a profitable sale, or whether or not it's a sustainable business for you to be in. And, um, other times it's like based on just operating income or just EBITDA with, with no consideration for return on capital or, or per share values. And that tells you all you need to know. So yeah, you right. gotta find cases where if the company does well and shareholders do well, management also does well. So, so, let's, so, so let's say that checks out on at least like these people are trying to do the right thing. How do you weigh the competency and how big of a factor is that in your decision-making process? It's really about track record. Uh, I, I do find that it's pretty rare for a, for a person leading a company to do really, really well for decades and then just totally become a total imbecile and just start messing up all over the place. And it's just as rare for a person who has a long history of just bumbling along to suddenly turn into some kind of business whiz and, and just uh, and just start killing it. It just it really doesn't happen. And so I tend to avoid companies that have a long history of failure. Um, even if they seem like they're turning around, I find them more often than not, that's just temporary and they'll just go back to their old ways uh, sooner rather than later. I much prefer companies that uh, have a history of success and, and of rewarding shareholders. Uh, the exception might be if it's a company that has had a rough history, but they have a new management in place. And, and you can take a look at where that person came from and how they did over there. But I find that, I mean, people don't tend to change, especially these small companies. If they're just a successful investor and business person, they tend to keep on doing so and vice versa. You mean they don't wake up with 50 extra IQ points one day? <laughs> I, I wish they could take yeah. a care of something. Uh, yeah, they should go on the Wall Street that's more and pick up those, those intelligence. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so... One of the what we like to do here is we want to talk about war stories. Uh, you know, I'm yeah. sure you've you've been in the game for a long time. I'm sure there's no shortage of war stories. Um, we've we've uh, on some of the podcasts and shows that we've done, we've talked about ones that haven't gone well. If you want to pick one that's gone well or hasn't gone well, we find that the ones that haven't gone well, you you tend to learn the most from. Um, do you have anything you might be able to share with us? I guess the question is like, what investment experience has taught you the most and along the way? And it could be good, bad, or otherwise, but just, you know, so, you know, something that would be interesting for people to learn from. Yeah. You know, it's been the same for me that typically the investments that have not gone according to plan or I lost money on are, are more, uh, more of a learning experience for yeah. me than, than the reverse. I mean, if I did my diligence and it, I was right, my thesis was right on and went according to plan, I was, tempted to just pat yourself in the back and move on. Uh, but it's the ones that I, I find myself like afraid to look at the screen and, and see where the stock price is, uh, finding new lows each day. And uh, not just because temporary issues, because I was genuinely wrong about something uh, regarding related to the company. But those are the ones where I find myself waking up at night thinking, what did I do wrong? Like I have to figure out why this happened and then how I can avoid this in the future. And so 
So yeah, I guess I'll focus uh, on an investment I made a couple of years back in a company called Katura uh, Energy. Um, don't own it. Uh, did, lost a lot of money, moved on quite a while ago. Neither, neither of us own that either. R- remind us, is that one of the coal companies that went in and out? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so the setup looked really good. Uh, as I mentioned, this was a company that went through bankruptcy, uh, shed a lot of its obligations, and uh, when the shares uh, were reissued, they traded over the counter for a while. Now I thought, like, this ticks a lot of boxes for me. Like, this trades over the counter. Like, it, it's a reasonably sized company, but it's over the counter, and the shares are still very liquid. So Katura Energy went through a, a bankruptcy process. Uh, they exited bankruptcy, and the shares were newly trading. On, over the counter. Uh, they were not an SEC filer. There was not a lot of liquidity. And so uh, I thought this could be a really great opportunity to, to get in before the wider market wakes up to this opportunity. Uh, also, the, the balance sheet was much improved as is typical of the company that goes through bankruptcy. Uh, and it was probably the, the world's least popular industry. I mean, nobody wants to invest in coal for good reason. But I thought, like, this could be a pretty classic, like, contrarian setup here. Uh, And if you looked at the financial projections that they released as part of bankruptcy, they were set to just generate an incredible amount of free cash. Uh, And on top of that, uh, pricing in in, in the coal markets had nearly doubled, even since those financial projections were uh, were released. And so I thought the stock was maybe $75 or, or, or $80 at that point. And I thought, this looks pretty interesting. Uh, maybe if I get in here, maybe I'll do well. Um, it, based on the market cap, it looked like they could easily generate their market cap in free cash over the next couple of years. And so I thought, all right, uh, I'm going to do some research here. And I, and I did. And, uh, clearly, I didn't do enough. But I liked what I saw at that point. And so uh, after, I thought- After the structure was cleaned up, the balance sheet was in good shape. After the reorg, they probably built some cash. and. I don't know if they, did they have a term loan coming out or something? I don't know. Yeah, they had a term loan. And what's really good too is they had a lot of mines that were marginal and they divested those uh, in the bankruptcy. They got rid of all of their non-profitable properties. So what you have is like the best dozen mines or so coming out of of the process and and coal pricing was way up and everything looked great at that time. This was 2015, 2016 timeframe? Yeah, you know, it might have been like 2017. Uh, it, it's a bit fuzzy now. I'm not a good. So Donnie was in the midst of saving all the coal miner jobs. So you mm-hmm. thought that you know, <laughs> make coal mining great again. Contura Energy, go. I mean, yeah, you know, that's the thing. Like coal had been such a bad industry for so long that a lot of mines had closed, uh, and sometimes that can get like a little bit of a supply squeeze going with the pricing, mm-hmm. and that's what was happening. Well, I mean, number one is the like the iron law of commodities is that high prices always result in new supply, always. Uh, and it usually happens faster than you think. Um, I, I told myself like, sure, you know, pricing will go down over the next couple of years, but until then they'll make tons of money. But you know what? All those mines that they mothballed, all those miners that they, they laid off were just sitting there waiting to get back to work. And as soon as prices were high for long enough, they reopened those mines and put those guys back to work. And um, sure enough, pricing went down. It's, it's uh, capacity in an industry, right? The capacity needs to like shrink and then like disappear. If it's just mothballed, it really hasn't gone away, right? It's sort of, it's sort of, it's the same thing that happened with like shale and, and, and the gas wells and everything else. And 
that's one of the things we debate on on like energy and commodity prices because the cure for high prices is high prices and uh mm-hmm. we're just not you know we're that's one of the things we debate amongst ourselves some days so yes right there with you so and, and you know and even with all of that the investment it could have worked out okay even with prices falling but i didn't figure on management being stupid and i should have because nearly every commodity company wants to be the biggest and the best. And I get it. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of prestige in being the CEO of a small regional coal producer or a small regional uh, shale driller or what have you, but you want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 um, driller or miner, or at least the biggest in your industry, because they get the glossy profiles in the magazines and and, uh, and you become a hometown hero, too, when you hire people and everyone's doing well. And that's much more fun than coldly uh, refusing to open new mines because you think pricing is in a high and uh, managing your world. No one appreciates that, especially when you're not part of the company. Um, and coming out of the bankruptcy, the, uh, the management team received some stock options, and so they had some exposure, but they were by no means large owners of the company. And so they didn't have a whole lot of motivation to uh, manage the stock prices. Were they the same management that was in control of the company before they filed? Yes. Ah. <laughs> we've, made that mistake too. <laughs> we've, we, we've made the same error, <laughs> just differently. But I think I excused it by saying like, this was an industry-wide condition, like coal prices hit like unprecedented lows and like, Every company went bankrupt. It wasn't like the one was over leveraged and they all went out. So I think I excused it based on, uh, uh, on on that. So rather than doing like the smart thing, like dividending out the excess cash or even buying back some stock or something, they did a little bit of that. But then the CEO got the bright idea to sort of like get the band back together. He, he took a look at all the mines they had divested um, <laughs> in the bankruptcy process, which we're now trading as another company, sort of like a, a very low quality, very marginal coal company that was also right. trading over the counter. And he's like, we got to, let's get back together. Let's, I know, I know those assets and, you know, uh, we want to be a bigger company and oh boy, aren't they cheap? Yeah. And, and you know, the funny <laughs> thing is I would have done much better in investing only in that company, which is called Alpha rather than Kuntura because they were the, the real beneficiaries from the high prices with the more marginal mines. And they got the smarter people uh, in, the, in the bankruptcy. They, the, the, the more junior, hungrier managers went over there rather than say with Kintura. Uh, and I don't know if it was just luck on their part or if they made the right decision, but they, <laughs> the investors in that somewhat crappy mine coal company I ended up doing very, very well compared to uh, Kintura, because Kintura wildly overpaid for those assets at the very peak of their profitability, all with the goal of being a much larger producer. So they frittered away their strong balance sheet on a, on a bunch of questionable, on re- reacquiring, some, reacquiring questionable, some questionable assets. The same assets that put them into bankruptcy. Exactly. The exact same mines that they hated enough to get rid of 18 months earlier, they now want it so bad that they just sort of wildly overpaid. And they even had to raise their bid at one point. The, the owners of the, uh, the, the crop co, we'll call it, like played their hand very, very well. 
Uh, and, and you know what? As a shareholder who's very close to the situation, I rationalized the whole thing. I thought, okay, you know, more mines, they're flowing great cash right now. The balance sheet's still going to be okay. Maybe not as strong as it was here, but I thought, why not? Let's see how it goes. And of course, I, I should have been thinking the exact opposite, but uh, that's the risk of being sort of emotionally invested. And I think at that point, I was down a good bit of my initial investment too, and really hoping for something, anything that would make the market take notice of what I thought was value. So, so how did it play out from there? Did it because uh, I've not followed it. it. Does it wind up being a twenty-two? Is it a prospective twenty-two? Is it <laughs> what, what, what happened? Yeah, well, you know. Uh, Coal pricing kept on going down, down. Um, pretty soon, a lot of those mines that they purchased were no longer cash flowing. And the mm. funny thing, <laughs> they ended up paying somebody else to take the mines away. Oh, my uh, they, Yeah, it, it's so funny. They, they actually sold the mines for the first time uh, to another operator, but they never succeeded in transferring the environmental permits. Uh, because that's all kind of that's a big process with state regulations and all that. The operator they sold those mines to then went bankrupt, leaving Contura on the hook for those mines. The and then they eventually paid someone a couple hundred million dollars to take those mines off their hands. So when is a sale not a sale when the seller can't pay and then sticks you with the environmental liabilities? <laughs> Precisely, it was an absolute disaster, and so. When it, it, it just went down, 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 and it looked very much like it would go bankrupt, but they got a new CEO in there who was actually very sharp, who was laser-focused on, uh, laser on uh, cutting costs, and it looks like the company will pull through, but I did terribly on that whole thing. When, when did you cut bait on it? I was probably down 80%. I probably what was. The, what but, but, was the event yeah, that but, made you say, like, um... I'm out. I'm, I've I've rationalized enough these people enough. way too long. I'm just I'm out. Well, it's you know, I think it was when I first. I was gonna say, was it strictly price? I, the the only smart thing I did. Yeah, the, the only smart thing I did about this entire investment was not averaging down. Uh, I didn't buy more shares on the way down. Only intelligent move I did the entire time. But I think when I finally decided to cut and run was when I realized that chapter 11 bankruptcy is a real possibility here. Uh, for a long time, I thought, okay, it's, it's not going to earn what I thought it could earn. Uh, I'll readjust. I told myself, okay, well, you, you know, it's not the company I thought it was, but the price is down way more than it should be. You know, maybe I thought it was worth X and it turns out it's only worth, you know, half of X, but the price is, you know, 0.3 X. Uh, but, that was just delusion. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I should have kept it long ago. And uh, on top of that, I, I even own some warrants, which are commonly issued in bankruptcy. And obviously, that those did poorly as well. So all around, it was just like a terrible outcome. We've owned some reorg warrants in our day too, and uh, the commodity ones we've not done well on. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've done well on several others, but yeah, commodity ones, I've, I've not. It's just been a bad environment for that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so your lessons learned on this are, are what exactly? It's the same management team that came in going out, commodity. Yeah. Well, I think for you know, making excuses for management mm -hmm. behavior, um, yeah. something that we've talked about before, yeah. that to me 
that's my internal red flag of what am hold on what am i doing here um is this should i be making excuses for this or yeah have you have you so one of the hardest things we find to do is to be honest with ourselves because oftentimes yourself is the easiest person to fool and so we've have you have you done anything along the way that sort of tried to help you with that along is there is, do you have a, a sounding board or a group of sounding board people like what like what have you like what what have you done along the way that sort of helped you with that i mean eric and i we talked amongst ourselves and talk with other investors and you know it's just always questioning yourself but even then and you know it's still very you're, you're still very easy to fool yourself so is there anything that you, anything that you do that you find helpful in that regard yeah, it, it, it's critical to talk to other investors, especially investors who have more experience than you or uh, have specialized in, in an industry that you're interested in. And, it, and even then, it's not foolproof. I, I know I definitely ran the idea past a few people who I, who I respect and had knowledge, and they're like, Dave, are you sure? Uh, they were kind of not to be like, you're a moron, but they're like, are you, are you really sure like, this is where you want to be? Uh, and I should have, uh, it should have been uh, enough uh, for me to realize that that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes the, the best investments are the ones where most people think you're insane uh, or you're crazy. But, but if you find someone who has a lot of knowledge and has seen the story play out before in the same industry or even with the same people, the same management team, you really should put a lot of weight on that. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah. There was a, let's see, I, had a, I, had a, I was listening to you, another podcast that you did recently on the way in, and I had a question related about that, but uh, something you guys covered there, but it's, it's escaping me at the moment. Eric, what else, what else do we have here? It was a good story. Yeah, that was a good one. That was, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, yeah, it's, it was a valuable experience, honestly. I think I'm a better investor because of it. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, those sometimes the tuition prices are high and you just try and make them manageable, but sometimes it's worth it and you avoid the mistake you get in the future. Position yeah. sizing, right? If you can make mistakes, but keep your mistakes small, yep. you'll live to fight another day. It's mm -hmm. the people who make the big mistakes that end up washed out. Yeah. And I, I now I remember what I was thinking about as I was listening to You run a fair, a unique strategy in sort of a unique space. I was just wondering if you could talk to some of the challenges of, of doing that now that we've gone through the sort of the war story, because I'm fascinated by the ins and outs of sort of running a micro cap OTC portfolio and sort of an help sort of the structure that you have. Um, yeah, curious. I mean, obviously, I think that the uh, the opportunities and advantages outweigh the disadvantages, but there are some some real considerations to, to running a strategy like this. And the biggest, of course, being uh, being liquidity. I was uh, listening to your podcast on the way in, and I was like, you know, like, how big could this strategy be, and like, how hard is it to run? <laughs> yeah, number one question I get. It's the most important question too. Is how much can I put in the strategy? And the answer is more, but I'll never really know until I run out of places to put cash. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Like, I can't turn on a dime uh, if I don't like something in the portfolio. I can't sell it today. It might take me a couple months. And so the biggest thing I have to do is make sure I really, really want something in the portfolio before I ever start buying it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of these things are sort of, they can be Hotel California. It's easy to check in, but uh, it's hard to leave. So mm -hmm. 
we think about that a lot when we get involved in things these days. It's uh, it, when you have little amounts of money, it's not that big of a deal. And as the amounts start to get bigger, it becomes a more and more important consideration. Yep. All right. Cool. I don't want to drive the car off the road any further. So Eric, you want to try yeah. and land the plane? Dave. Dave thanks. Yeah. Thank this you so awesome. much. That was a great story. I really appreciate, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, where do people go to find more information on you and follow what you've been up to? Sure. So let's see. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I tweet about stocks or whatever. And, uh, just my handle is Alluvial Capital. Uh, I still write on OTC Ventures now and then. So that's otcventures.com. And, and then my, uh, my management company is just alluvialcapital.com or alluvial.capital. Awesome. Thanks so much. And for everyone else, we're available anywhere podcasts are available in the market trenches at podbean.com. You can also check us out at snn.network and the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash snnwire. Dave, again, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.